0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Olivier Theatre. Congratulations on braving the tube strikes and the resultant traffic jams that have uh, brought you here this evening. Um, My name's Mark lai I'm a director and also the author of a book called Catching the Light, which is about Simon's working partnership with Sam Mendes and their eight previous collaborations prior to King Lear. So it's a genuine pleasure for me to be here for the third of these Talking Lear platforms to talk to Lear himself. Um, He actually knows more about my than I do <laughs> no, they, really. um, I suppose to begin with the, the f- let's let's start at the beginning and the, the approach to play Lear I, I think this has been reasonably well publicized now but would you like to take us through the conversation that happened after Galileo yes um,
1: the um, <clears throat> fun enough in one of the sort of pre ambles in the papers that you know is anticipating this production Uh, It said it had been in development for years. That's actually not true, of course. Um, But it was first mentioned when I did Galileo on this stage. And Sam came to see it. And I played Galileo at the end of his life in the play, becomes a very, very old and frail and very angry man. And Sam said, he looked at me and thought, oh, I I think probably he should be thinking about Lear now. So in the bar afterwards, we were having a pint. And he said, I think we should do Lear before it's too late. That was the. (coughs) And I was 45. Um, Actually, we'll talk about the age of Lear later because it's actually quite. I've got some some interesting facts, um, which you probably all know. But um, anyway, 45. And I said, oh, for God's sake, Um, not yet. And so it was ignored. Uh, So that was eight years ago. And uh, then he came, saw Much Do About Nothing, which I did for Nick. Uh, again on this stage, we were in the bar afterwards, and he said, I really think we should think about Lear again. I said, well, and I've always done this, I always thought, well, if you think I can play it, then fine, because I trust your taste, as I trust Nick's. Um, I'm not a very good caster of myself, so I thought, well, okay, do you want to mention it to Nick? And um, Sam mentioned it to Nick, I mentioned it to Nick, and... uh, Uh, We started talking about it then, and then for various reasons um, to do with what I was doing and also of course what Sam, rather famously, was doing with Bond and things. um, It got postponed and postponed and postponed. But eventually we we, we found the date and uh, uh, we've done it. Uh, The other other big question, and uh, it does again lead on to lots more uh, interesting subjects, is the theatre to do it in, because Sam had never directed in this theatre. Um, this beautiful, beautiful theatre um, of which I am inordinately fond. And uh, it's tough and it's difficult, and all the actors who are in Lear will, will agree with me, it's tough, it's difficult, but my God, it's a beautiful theatre to play. Um, and uh, so he, uh, I, I hope I'm not um, misrepresenting him, but he, uh, he said originally, what about Littleton, where he'd done The Sea and uh, The Birthday Party and there's. We, we, we're not really allowed to do it in the Cottesloe, as it was then, uh, because Nick quite rightly thinks that these very big plays probably should have a, a, a more public profile. Because um, the Cottesloe would have been lovely, of course. Um, so I said, well, OK, well, what, why don't we risk it and do it in the Olivier and do an epic production and let's have a big storm and... Uh, and there have been so many brilliant, brilliant studio productions of this play over the last few years, like Ian, obviously, and Derek, and people like that. That I, that I thought, okay, come on, come on, let's ris- risk it. Let's 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 see if we can do it. So eventually, Nick said, okay, let's do it in the Olivier.
0: And the the plan was always for the production to be epic in scope in terms of cosmos in terms of the universe
1: there was there was there were various various um, threads to this this idea but uh, the I've always been uh, over the last few years uh, as Lear was beginning to enter into my brain I kept on thinking it's interesting that uh, when we talk about Hamlet we very often talk about the political environment of Hamlet spy state And this is a man who did the most famously apolitical Hamlet in in recent years. perhaps absolutely no politics in it at all. Um, Fascinating. You know, it's a fascinating world to study. Um, But I don't hear people talk about the politics of Lear very often. I hear a lot about Lear and his daughters, Lear and the family, uh, Gloucester and his sons, Gloucester and his family. But... I, I, years and years ago I, when I was a, a teenager I saw the Peter Brook film and I've since seen, seen the Kuntsev uh, film, can't say that um, both of which are very politicised films and, I, and the image I had the first image I mentioned to Sam was from Peter Brook's film of, of the, ro- do you remember they were rolling uh, carts with Goneril and Regan rushing across the country to try and shore up Alliances, and it's set in the sort of medieval Britain. So these these great wooden wheels, and they're thundering over very bumpy ground. And there's a sense of urgency and a sense of desperation. And I thought, God, isn't that interesting? The play is about as much about that as it is about family, and the idea of people rushing around the country in a state of potential civil war. And I, and I. So. Going to Olivier was also partly to try and and this became for Sam a very important part of his idea of the play that it should it's a famous play for having you know a family, personal level, a national level, a cosmic level, uh, an individual level, um, And that's what makes it one of the greatest plays ever written. and just that one level seemed to be the one that Sam wanted to really put on stage, which is, of course, why we have. 30 marvellous supernumeraries who come on and represent military power. Um, I, I could I could go on. do you want me to go on about this? Because actually there is a <laughs> <laughs> shall I bore you some more? I think um, everyone
0: I think enthralled I rather than rather Well, than well the interesting
1: thing about that the interesting thing about that having started with this, this idea that <clears throat> what the hell is that first scene about? What, what's it about? What's he doing? I, I, I still don't quite know what he's doing. I mean, uh, I, I've got an idea in my head that he might think it's a good idea to divide his kingdom into three, but I can't really, really make it work because it seems daft. Um, and to give one-third of the way to a foreign power seems to be politically suicidal to me. So I don't... I, he starts the play, Daft is putting it mildly, he starts the play with a catastrophic, criminal mistake. It's criminal, what he does. And Kent says to him, this is evil. This is evil, what you're doing. And he does it, uh, I don't know for what reason, at the very beginning of the scene, but certainly by the time uh, is not playing the game, he's doing a division of the kingdom out of a fit of pique and vanity and... Uh, a man who's been an absolute power for far too long for his own sanity Uh, perhaps with with a sense that his own brain is beginning to to fail so there's fear and there's uh, hurt uh, in that mix but he divides the kingdom into two between two men who he knows and says don't like each other it it, it seems to me to be absolutely criminal Um, and Gloucester, in the next scene, interesting enough, um, talks not about Cordelia at all. He mentions her once. He says the division between father and child, but not even by name. His main concern is the banishment of Kent and the division of the kingdom between Cornwall and Albany. In other words, that is what the scene is principally about. Um, on top of that, we have a family problem. But I suppose, you know, Cordelia could come back. I mean, you know, it's not irreparable his relationship with Cordelia. What is irreparable is giving the kingdom away. And um, I think that creates a whole series of interesting questions about uh, sympathy for him. And uh, I, I, we, we only ever see him. I don't know of any other character, except for perhaps Leontes in Shakespeare, which does it, who, who makes his mistake very early on. So we never ever see him as the king that Kent loves. As the king that Gloucester loves, as the king that Edgar respects, we only ever see him making this catastrophic mistake. Um, consequently, sympathy is a very interesting thing in the play, because frankly, he's horrible. <laughs> and and you know, there are other elements like the way he treats Goneril is simply unspeakable, unspeakable what he does to his eldest daughter. So we never see him. We never see him as this marvellous, great king. Now, somehow, (laughs) it would be wrong if we didn't feel sorry for him at the end. So that little finesse is quite tricky, I think. (laughs) I believe you. Um,
0: While we're we're talking about that that first scene, let's look at that a little more in depth, and we we can go into preparation in other areas later on. But uh, you've talked before about that first moment being sort of a living will, and that was an yes. idea that you arrived at in the scene. Could you explain Well, that I mean, that? This, is,
1: this is part of the sort of... Um, trying to explain this as a rational man's decision. Um, uh, I th- I, my, my version of it is that he comes on and he thinks, well, before I die, uh, what I will do is I'll make sure my daughters all know what they're going to get when I die. So it's a sort of living will. Uh, Cordelia, of course, throws a spanner in the works by refusing to play. Uh, I, I, as I say I, before, I don't think it's necessarily a sensible idea, but at least he'll still be king. And then I think I think, once Cordelia has refused to play, he then does this sort of rather improvised thing about um, you two share it up, and I don't care how it's, it's divided, you sort that out, you know. Um, no, as you start a civil war, and, and, and I'll go around with a hundred knights, and that's a sort of improvised moment, and then I'll, I'll keep, you can still call me king, but I won't do any work. And <laughs> I, I think all that is, is part of, of the improvisation, and also part of, which we'll get onto later, his condition, which I think is, I think that's what makes him, where the seeds of sympathy should come. Is that he's he's well aware of his being ill, or oh, the beginnings of illness, which is why I, I have a little shake in my hand because. Well, uh,
0: well, let's talk a little bit about that. That now, as we strayed onto that area, you you have a, a, a number of doctor siblings, and and I know that um, that one of them provided you access to a very particular strand of research that I. That my nephew. Oh, excuse.
1: Who's coming to the end of his training as a doctor at Barts and. Um, I've never done this before, and um, this might be in the programme, but I've never done this before with a Shakespeare play, which is I've never thought, when I did Iago or Hamlet. I didn't sit there thinking oh, I really must look at grief or I really must look at uh, jealousy um, in a sort of research-type way. But in this one, I thought, I bet, I bet Shakespeare, being the acute observer of human nature as he is, will have studied old men so I thought I'm going to do a bit of research that's sort of within the play I I do lots of research fun enough about I love things like publication dates and and all the anarchy stuff I love all that but um, (laughs) this is the first time I sort of took a subject that was actually within the play and decided I needed to look at it properly so anyway I was I was at my sister's for the weekend um, for Sunday lunch and my nephew was there and he's I said tell me about dementia And um, and in fact, actually, he happened to be doing his geriatric bit at that point. Um, And uh, you know, I found out various bits of information. They're probably not accurate, but they're now in my head. There are three types of dementia. And then we found this article by, and I'm afraid I can't remember his name, uh, a particular psychoanalyst uh, about analysing Lear, which is a sort of party game that psychoanalysts do. You can find you know essays about Ophelia, and and, uh, it's quite fun. Anyway, his analysis of Lear was this one called Lewy body dementia, which is uh, not Alzheimer's and not vascular dementia. And it seemed to fit rather neatly into uh, what Lear seems to be suffering. And there are various things like hallucinations, which is a particular sign of it. It it goes in state, uh, Alzheimer's tends to be a, a, I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it tends to be a slow decline, whereas Louis body goes in stages. Louis body is very quick. Um, Hallucinations uh, and the hallucinations are always Uh, frightening. You don't see angels at the end of your bed; you see dogs, which of course Leah sees. Um, And I thought, and that's fascinating. And it has a particular—it's sort of linked with Parkinson's. It has a particular uh, shake of the hand. which they call rolling the pill. I don't know quite why. Anyway, so Ben, my nephew, started me off, and then I said to my brother, who's a consultant in in the West Country, I said, would you happen to have a a geriatrician who would be willing to speak to me? So I popped up, he said, yes, Debbie. So I popped up to see Debbie in her lunch hour, and bless her, she, she took me through all the, all the areas that I was interested in, which includes physical things, wandering, of course, which Leah does. Um, uh, shame, which Kent quite specifically says he's suffering from shame, uh, and I'd love to talk about that because cause I think that's a very interesting part of the play. Uh, and uh, anger, obviously, and it's not it's not a nice illness. <laughs> um, anyway, she took me all through that, and uh, and, and uh, the one thing she didn't say that happens very often is guilt. Just you know. That doesn't seem to happen with her patients, but it's to do. It's the shame is to do with awareness of how you've just behaved rather than a lifetime of misbehaving. (laughs) (coughs) But it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's the first time I've ever done it, isn't it? (coughs) It's not a blueprint. It doesn't, you know, Shakespeare doesn't play all the games. And of course, you've got this funny double time scheme in Lear, which, as in a lot of his plays, is that you know logically, Edgar becomes a very convincing. Um, madman and uh, homeless person within hours, and Lear becomes mad within hours, but you, as all of these plays, you, there's a sort of sense in which this, is, this is, goes over a long, as with Othello, a long span of time. So
0: let's stick with the preparation for the role we'll we'll get into the the other areas and later scenes a a bit later on but um in terms of the the look of lear and and going back to this dictator and that political landscape of the play um sam encouraging you to shave your head, as you had done with Iago, and to really bring out the, the brute. And I noticed that you've graduated from upending chairs in the Cherry Orchard to turning tables over now, and uh, uh, just to look at that physical strength and the dragon and his wrath, and, and to talk about that part of the design of him.
1: Well, the hair's quite interesting, actually, because Sam, obviously, regarded that as a shortcut for me, <laughs> he said, just shave your head, because, honestly, uh, you did it with Richard III and you did it for Iago, and <laughs> and, it'll get you into the right sort of mood, which, which actually, of course, it does, because actually I have a fine head of hair. and um, um, Unlike the rest of my family who we are going bald. Um, so, yes, it's all sort of rather flowy when we start rehearsals. Anyway, that came off. Um, the, uh, um, sewing the tables over, actually, um, Sam has now sort of honed a type of rehearsal process which, which I think is extremely... Um, hospitable to actors and uh which is that we we were there all the time actually i think he said at the beginning of rehearsals that we weren't going to be all there all the time and i think there were a couple of days when there wasn't a full call but for most of that rehearsal period we were there all the time all of us and um you know we sit around the table uh first of all and go through the play and and as you, for those of you who are familiar with Lear, which I'm sure is a large proportion of you, things like the Fifth Act has been considerably uh, changed. There's no duel between Edgar and Edmund, for instance. Uh, and so we talked about that, and we... And we but we're all round the table, so at least we're all reading from the same Bible by the end of the, that process. And then what he does is he... And he sort of started this, I think, with Uncle Vanya, which was, we did uh, ten years ago now. Um, and I think he wanted a Russian feel, so he put lots of rugs on the floor and, and, and a circle of sort of armchairs and stools and sofas all the way around, so it felt rather like a, a living room. Um, but he sort of kept it as a, as a way of, of uh, uh, rehearsing, which means that you, you don't... It's quite scary going to the circle for the first time, but as Tom, who plays Edgar, pointed out yesterday, at the platform yesterday, it does, it does become easy very quickly. And you have all the people watching you, and uh, anybody's contribution is welcome. Um, and uh, Up to a point. And, <coughs> uh, and the thing is that what Sam does is that you, he just does a scene in many different ways. And then what he does personally is go home, and I think he just sort of computes it. So two weeks later he'll say, let's get rid of the chairs and the... the and start putting it on its feet as it, as it were for the stage and then he'll say, do you remember when you threw the tables over or do you remember when you, know, you screamed when you were waking up in bed you know, and uh, you'll go back to that. So it's, it's sort of storing up a set of options for him really and for us. So that's how that, that works.
0: But also, the, 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 the physicality of the performance, oh, how, did, uh, how did that arrive, the sort of well, forward head and the...?
1: Uh well, we cut the line that he's 80, but obviously he has to be an old man, and I suppose I was just thinking, there's, I, 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 I just have to work out a way... I had the dementia stuff, in, you know, the physical stuff in my head, so the second half, um, when he's very little. Uh, was sort of already brewing, and then uh, I I thought i just have to be older. I got sent an email by um, an academic called James Shapiro last week who saw the play, a New York academic who teaches at uh, Columbia. And uh, Burbage, for whom Shakespeare wrote this role, was 38. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And in fact, he found... He, was doing, he became rather interested in the age thing, because lots of people said I was too young, which I'm sort of not compared to a lot of Lear's recently. Um, but uh, he, he said, actually, he found out that almost no, he could find no actor from Shakespeare's time who was continuing to act after 50, except for Burbage, Interesting enough, who died. Um, Still acting, but Edward Allen, his great rival, retired when he was 30. Anyway, that's the p- parenthesis. So, uh, a lot of lot of old men being played by very young men, um, and I know they died younger. And, uh, but even so, there were 80-year-olds around. Um. Fascinating. Where were we? I can't remember. <laughs> the physicality. Of oh, the physicality. So yeah. So the ball, the ball, the ball slouch, and the and. The, I mean, that's just me trying to be old, older.
0: Um, You have, of course, played Leah once before. Um, I bring that up lightly, but but, um, my reason for bringing that up is to talk about what your preconceptions were of the play before you began approaching the role. So after Sam's offer and you actually began reading it, what preconception-smashing moments were there for you?
1: When he means i have played Lear before, I was 17. <laughs> it was the unknown, definitive performance of Lear.
0: <laughs> Actually,
1: I don't remember anything about it. Although I got a photograph on, on the press night, I got sent a photograph of me doing it from somebody who and uh, the beard in the wig cost 50 quid. It's a lot of money uh, from Old Vic. Um, and I don't really remember anything about it. My brother, who played Albany, remembers a little bit more about it, but I don't really remember anything about it. Although, oddly, we were talking about this just before we came on tonight with some of the cast, but oddly, I remember, I remember the words more clearly of Lear than I do of anything else I've done. It's, it's to do with being young, isn't it? But I remember reading the first scene thinking, I know this, actually. <laughs> uh, this, this is in my brain. Preconceptions. Preconceptions. <clears throat> I think the big one and this is associated with being uh, an angry old man is the last scenes of reconciliation. I think that was the, bi- the, big, the big one was what we call the hospital scene um, when he wakes up in bed. And the more I looked at it, the more uncomfortable that scene. I'd always seen it, heard of it, or had a conception of it as being a scene of reconciliation. Although at last his daughter's back, and you know, big hugs and kisses and crying and we're we're fine. Um, and it was Stanley who was playing Kent who who pointed out. And in fact, I think originally in our cut script, this particular section wasn't in. But I, I became fascinated by it. And I mentioned the word already. He said, talking to uh, Gary, who, who's playing what we call the surveillance officer, which is the sort of part that you see with Kent a lot. Uh, <clears throat> and he says, how is uh, Leah? And he says, he doesn't want to meet his daughter. He doesn't want to see her. He really doesn't want to see her. He's ashamed of seeing her. And I thought, oh, oh, right, of course, of course. He knows, as he says in his own words, I'm not, in, I'm not in my perfect mind, and he knows he's done something terrible. He doesn't want to see her. And he wakes up in bed, and there she is. Uh, Interestingly enough, I mean, it goes two ways, because she also, and I think Olivia would agree with this, doesn't, she's frightened of him. <coughs> Seeing old people in bed, old, ill people in bed, is a, a your dad or your mum, it's a very, very distressing thing to see. As a child I thought old people slept up in their chairs fully dressed, that's what (laughs) old people did. To see them in bed, in a hospital, is a very distressing thing. And the last time she saw him, of course, was when he was in the sort of plenitude of his power. And um, uh, So she herself is also wary, and the doctor has to say, please, please. You wake him. No, no, you wake him. No, you wake him. Draw near, come on. And, uh, and then he, his first lines are, I am bound upon a wheel of fire. And I thought, this isn't a reconciliation, is it? This is really uncomfortable and difficult. And he doesn't know where he is. He's angry. Half the words in that first speech when he wakes up, was, you, you're, you're treating me badly. And if, another, if I saw another person being treated like that, I would weep. Don't treat me like this. I shouldn't be here. Blah, blah, blah. I refuse to look at you. I don't know who you are. And then finally she says, look at me, look at me. And that's when he says, I'm a foolish, fond old man. But in other words, <coughs> what I thought was this marvellously poetic uh, recon- uh, meeting is not. It's the beginning of something. It's the beginning. He asks her to forgive him, uh, which she doesn't reply to, you see now. Um, but it's the beginning. But it's not some marvelous uh, process. There are f- f- four scenes that Leah has in that second half, the second of which is, uh, the th- third of which, rather, the hospital's the second. The third of which is, I think, the most difficult scene for me, which I still haven't quite located, which is when he says to her, let's go away to prison, and we'll be like two birds. And it's a difficult scene because he's under pressure from being taken prisoner. So presumably there are people around. In our our case, they, they sort of move away, and they have other things to do. But in other words, there is a pressure for him not to speak but Shakespeare gives him this beautiful speech and it is beautiful but it's nonsense it's nonsense he's got his daughter's just said to him for your sake I've been made prisoner that doesn't sound like a particularly forgiving thing to say she does say if it hadn't been for you I would be able to cope with it but you know she's a good girl but you know <clears throat> she's not in the best place he does this thing about saying to his married daughter who is also happens to be queen of France I know, let's go away to prison and we'll spend the rest of our life there. And you're th- you're, every time I think of what Cordelia must be thinking, it must be, I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> what are you talking about? Stuck with my senile father for the rest of my life in a, in a prison cell. <clears throat> so now there's the second scene of the reconciliation. The reconciliation is... Bonkers. The next scene, she's dead. So the great, the great thing that changed in my head about, about this play was the fact that they don't get the chance. That's what makes it so unbelievably devastating. They never get a chance to really reconcile, and talk to each other, forgive each other. And of course, Shakespeare, later in his life, in the, in the last place, became very, very um, uh, concerned about the nature of forgiveness. You know, In The Tempest, in The Winter's Tale uh, particularly, uh, people are forgiven, and famously in The Tempest, they don't reply. You know, Prospero forgives his brother who doesn't reply. Famously in The Winter's Tale, Leontes asked for forgiveness of his resurrected wife, and she doesn't speak to him. So Shakespeare, Shakespeare knew, as we all know, that forgiveness isn't a question of just saying, I forgive you, and you say thank you, and then it's all as, as it was. This is a, a, a fractured and uh, damaged relationship that needs time, and they're not given time. I, I think that's devastating. I really think that's devastating.
0: Um, as you can probably tell, we wanted Simon to be able to speak freely, so I hope we're not spoiling any of the production for anybody. If oh, uh, if yes, I'm if, sorry. If, we <laughs> <laughs> if indeed we are, then this next question may be lead us on to a sort of spoiler alert moment. So <laughs> if you're intending to watch the production in future, then put your fingers in your ears now. But um, to, to, follow through kinda, <laughs> to follow through um, on that topic of madness, the person with whom he and his awareness of his own predicament and his illness. The person with whom he communicates most in the production about that is is the fool, I would argue. So to talk a little bit about how intimate that's made and how, how much of a confession that's made, why to the fool, and to lead us through to the fool's...
1: What happens to him. Demise. Um, <coughs> the, uh, you know, one of the most beautiful scenes in the play, of course, is the scene... Uh, we, we've just met the fool, and and Lear is delighted to have him back I think he he went away after Cordelia was banished he's obviously an ally of Cordelia's uh in some way uh but Lear's pleased to have him back and then Lear does this as I say, this terrible terrible which we'll, we'll get on later the daughters this terrible attack on Conroe I mean it's on the first preview one of the cast got a, a text message from a friend in the audience saying that attack on Goneril is way out of order. And um, <laughs> <coughs> yeah, it's way out of order. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, I think Leah at that point in this version is sort of thinking, oh Jesus, um, that was more vicious even than I uh, anticipated or wanted even. So he has that very beautiful scene in which Lear doesn't is almost speaking in monosyllables. It's the most beautifully written scene. He's so clever, isn't he? Just, you know, knows, yes, why, you know, he, and the fool is... And they're waiting to travel to Regan's, having left Goneril's in a huff. And... Um, uh, so the fool's trying to keep up his spirits in some way. Um, and th- then there's a the very famous line, oh, let me not be mad. Not mad, sweet heaven. And, uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only Lear that thinks that should, that should be done straight to the fool. That it's not a, an internal thing. It's not a, a cry to the heavens. Yes. It's a, a genuine thing to the only man who could possibly keep him sane. Uh, Just please stop me. Anything you can do to stop me losing my mind. Uh, very, very moving idea that a friend could do that. And of course, after the famous "Oh, reason not the need" speech, it's the f- the fool that he talks to. He says, "Oh, fool, I shall go mad." You know, it's it's that's the man's the man he can talk to about it, and, and and he can't talk to anybody else about it. In fact, I think in our version he's slightly embarrassed to talk to the fool about it. Is he's not a man that would be would have spent his life. Uh, spilling his innermost thoughts onto other people. And um, anyway, the, uh, in our version, this is the spoiler alert. Famously, of course, the fool disappears. Uh, and there, there are reasons for that. They've been ve- well explained, or there are reasons that people put forward for that, uh, partly because, of course, Lear has now lost his mind, and therefore the fool has no function uh, within the play. Uh, and then there's a very famous line right at the very end, when he's holding the dead Cordelia, my poor fool is hanged, uh, which some people have thought it could refer to uh, Cordelia, and the, and the idea that Cordelia and fool were the same actor. All those are very interesting, but not particularly useful ideas, I think, in the sense that actually the truth of the matter is that he lost his function in the play, therefore Shakespeare just, got rid- you know, just didn't write anything more for him. But it's, <coughs> you know, dare I say it, uh, say it, a little a weakness in an otherwise almost perfect play (laughs) (laughs) Uh, heresy Uh, that he doesn't that that major character is just left to float off in some sort of uh, and we talked lots of you know I uh, my my original thought was that he should hang himself that he has no the world is so grotesquely distorted by the time he disappears you know, the next scene we see is a man having his eyes gouged out. This is not a nice place anymore, if it ever was. Uh, it's a horrible, distorted world of violence and grief and anger. And uh, I thought perhaps he should hang himself, you know, that it wasn't. Um... And then Sam said, What if Leah kills him himself? And in his. You know, Almost as a sign that his mind has completely gone. So that's what, that's what I do. I beat him to death. Um, and it's horrible. I mean, it's um, it's a there are a couple of occasions when when Lear in his madness, uh, you know, in that rather beautiful madness, what we call the mad scene with Gloucester and Edgar, there, and he's very affectionate to Gloucester and you know all sorts of things. But there are moments in his madness when he when he repeats the word kill, 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 when you sort of sense that this is the old Lear rearing its head. This is a man who who probably, as ruler, would have at least authorised the death of people, and he's not squeamish about that at all. Um, And he has a violent nature. And uh, the beating up the fool is entirely uh, unintentional, but uh, he kills him. And I was talking to Stan when we came off today, actually. uh, knowing that I'd probably be talking about this today, I said, to "Stanley, what?" Because I can't. I'm asleep by the time he has to cope with the dead fool. And I said, "What? What? What do you? What do you do? Do you react?" And he says, "Well, I check. I check that the he's lying in a bath, the fool. I check. I check that I go to look at him, and I see a man who quite patently has had his head smashed in, and is." dying or dead um and then the the most important thing is to get lear settled so that he doesn't do anything else um violent um so it's a it's a difficult one for stanley and Stephen, who plays gloucester and for tom who plays edgar to negotiate because of course it's not in the text so they have to negotiate this idea of they're they're required to ignore the the fool ultimately Ignore the fool's death, because there are greater priorities, one of which is to get Lear out, and to Dover, and to his daughter, and safe. Um, and I, I talked to Stanley, as I said, th- today, and I said, I suppose in this awful world, which it's now becoming, the death of a minor functionary of an old man ki- a mad king is not significant. And I think we've moved into that sort of world. I saw the Simon Sharma um, Story of the Jews on DVD over the weekend. And uh, there was a picture of the Warsaw uh, ghetto. And there was a, uh, you know, one of those endless, depressing photographs of a four-year-old child dead on the streets of Warsaw and people walking past. And I think that's the sort of world that Lear enters, that the play enters. Um, where death becomes um, the amazing thing about Shakespeare is that he 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 can do that, can't he? That that taught the uh, blinding scene. It always seems to be, in whatever production I've ever seen, it's it's always horrific, and it's and it's horrific because for some reason by that stage of the play, and because it's being written by a genius, it somehow represents every single regime based on torture that's ever existed. So. Know, they all come flooding into your head. It's not just, a, it's not just the blinding of a, a single man. Mm.
0: Two areas that, that that's just sort of opened up. We'll, we'll get to the, the daughters very shortly. But uh, to talk a little bit about this interior world of Lear and the idea of him not really wishing to share with the fool, he doesn't really share much with the audience. No, he doesn't soliloquise. And and I would imagine when you're approaching a huge Shakespearean role like this, you would imagine a soliloquy arriving at some point or other. Do you miss that communion with the audience? Is the storm scene an opportunity to commune with the audience? Is it something you're (laughs) aware of? (laughs) now? Actually,
1: just slightly, because of course, he, the, the third speech in the storm scene is about uh, uh, anybody who's got any guilty secrets. Uh, n- your time has come, uh, which you, was quite fun to do to the audience, and to him. Uh, the uh, uh, The, the lack of soliloquies, of course, I mean, I'm fascinated by, it, as, as any actor who's done a lot of Shakespeare always is, is fascinated about soliloquies and about why they're there, for a particular function, and why people stop. And I'm sure some of you who've heard me talk before will we'll know that I find it fascinating when people stop soliloquizing, why Hamlet stops, the greatest soliloquizer of all, stops talking to the audience, why Iago stops. They almost all do at some point in the play which the third stops. And there are various r- reasons which you can sort of find in your head about why that happens. You know, that Hamlet, uh, after he goes to England and comes back, he's a different man. There's some, something magical has happened to him, where he's calm and doesn't need the audience anymore. Iago, as I've said before, simply gets too busy. And <laughs> there's no time to talk to the audience. You've, 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 and since he has an absolute contempt for the audience in the first place, it's not a, is not a great loss to Iago. Um, Richard III stops soliloquizing basically, when he becomes king. And it's not as much fun as he thought it was going to be. Um, and then he has the famous soliloquy before the Battle of Bosworth. Um, and a, a very great director, who actually happens to be married to Regan, um, in our production called Roger Michel, once said to me, uh, "Cast, cast the audience in a role. For soliloquies, and I think he said he got it from someone else, which is very useful, you know, that uh, Hammett needs friends, Iago has contempt, um, Richard III's leader of the gang, whatever, whatever. I've said all this before, but... But uh, Lear... Lear, I'm sorry, simply doesn't need the audience. I mean, partly because this is a man who has needed... assumed he needed nobody for most of his life, uh, and also because his brain's going and i'm sure that's why he he he, he knows that he knows he can't communicate properly it's it's fascinating is not i i wonder i don't know whether anybody's done any, any uh, numerical you know number crunching on this but there are so many unfinished sentences in lear the most famous one being i know you unnatural hags i would have such avengers on you both that all the world shall I will do such things what they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. But there are loads of them. Can't finish the sentence. Can't, oh, I don't know what the word is. Um, so that's an interesting uh, game that uh, Shakespeare's playing. You know, I don't think he'd be capable of talking to the audience, is what I'm saying, for half the play.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the daughters and the, the um, interpretation of that and the relationships that, that in this production Leah has with his daughters. Obviously Cordelia is his favourite, it says so very clearly in the text, but one of the f- preconception smashing moments for me was, was actually from the first Talking Leah platform about, about the daughters where, before I'd seen this production, that actually most of Leah's abuse is towards Goneril yeah. and actually he, I, I doesn't inst- that, that he, d- he doesn't insult Reagan no, at all, not at all. No. Um, and so I, I, but yet there is particularly in, in this production and in Anna Maxwell Martin's portrayal, a, a particular sexuality about the relationship there. Could you talk a little about uh, the about uh, the, uh, the three uh, relationships:
1: uh, uh, it, That was a preconception breaking thing for me. I hadn't realized that all his venom goes to Goneril. and um That's fascinating, isn't it? Why one child gets it. Uh, And Kate, who is the most beautiful woman uh, in life, I look at her in the first scene, and I see tight, controlled, and judgmental, as so many children are of their parents. and he, say, he says to her, doesn't he, you're, you're always frowning. Stop frowning. And I, I think there's a sort of, uh, there's a very strange thing that happened early on in the rehearsal about the idea that he doesn't like her. And I'm still, I, I'm still clinging on to that a bit. He, he loved, you know, as far as his, his definition of love works, you know, he says, you're my child, my daughter, and... and but he doesn't like her. He doesn't like her company. He doesn't... When, she can, when he's having fun with the nights, she, she comes in and she's all... You know. Whereas Regan, in some sort of instinctive, I suspect, way, just makes him laugh. I mean, I think he would say, you know, she's not my favourite, but she's, she makes him laugh. She's sassy and funny and and he doesn't take her seriously really Goneril, he takes very seriously but really doesn't take her seriously you know. and, uh, and of course <laughs> ironically she's the one who proves to be bordering on psychopathic uh, uh but i think that yeah that was a, that was a, a a preconception uh breaking moment and also it was so wonderful to be able to, to to know that Shakespeare had allowed us to define those three women clearly. You know, that it wasn't two similarly evil um, women versus one good woman. They were all different in their various ways. And there is a sense in which Regan is sort of genetically, in Anna's performance, sort of genetically programmed to end up blinding somebody and getting some sort of thrill out of it. And, uh, And that Goneril is programmed by her upbringing to be this tight uh, and repressed woman who, of course, Lear's behaviour sets her on a path, a spiral of self-loathing, I suppose, basically, which spirals her down into a relationship with Edmund and contempt for her husband and all the things that end up in her killing herself. Um, for which I, I, would, I would hold Lear responsible. <laughs> it's another, one, another black mark against him. I think he's responsible for Goneril's... She tries, she tries. The, the, um, the amazing scene which ends up with no oh Reason, Not The Need is, is so rational on their part, especially Goneril. Please, Dad, j- you know, just... You don't need the knights. We we can give you knights. We can give you people you can have fun with, and they'll all be looked after, and they'll be all looked after by the same, um, you know, same command structure. Um, you know, it's it's perfectly rational. Um, Regan, if if he'd spotted it, is slightly less rational. She goes, "Oh yeah, you don't need any of them." You know, you don't, you know she, she's a little bit more careless of his feelings but Goneril, Goneril does try she really tries and she comes she swallows the insults and she comes back and goes and this uh, this that's a pattern that we must all be familiar with um, about aging parents and various other things you know come back and try again and Macalston children of course but um, so I, I think uh, that uh, What's so astonishing about the way that scene ends is that, and I didn't, hadn't realised how brilliant that speech, a reason not the need is, partly because it's, again, not got two broken, three or four broken thoughts, but two, or, or two broken sentences where he can't complete his thought, is that he's, it's the most brilliant idea, isn't it? I cannot rationalise, as you have done to me so brilliantly that I am now defeated, I cannot rationalise to you my need of something irrational. It's the most <coughs> despairingly brilliant speech. I can't put into words why I need 100 nights. It doesn't make sense. And I accept that you make sense. <laughs> no.
0: And for Cordelia, I mean, have you answered the question for yourself, why is Cordelia his favorite? Or do you just accept that, in the text, Cordelia is
1: his favorite? Yes, I'm, I suppose I just, just say it's she is. Because I mean, that's all she, you need to play the she's scenes. a chip off the old block, as we know. I mean, that, that first scene doesn't show it. <laughs> um, but I think, yes, I have sort of just accept that that is unfortunately the case, that he just loves one of them without, um, without conditions, whereas the other two, um, it's a more complicated relationship. I saw, um, now, who was it I was talking to? Uh, somebody came and saw the play or, or I was talking about it and talking about the scene I was having difficulty with the, the, the one about the prison and um, it was a, uh, a friend of mine I can't, I can't remember who it was now but who had a um, who had daughters her children and he said um, oh it's like that marvelous moment as the father of a daughter when they're about 15 and suddenly you're talking to them as sort of equals, you know that you're talking yeah, it's that really. And I thought that was a lovely note about that about that dream that he has of prison, that it's it's the sheer joy of knowing that this creature is now on your level, I suppose, or you're on her level or whatever. And then that day. I was walking around London, I saw a man walking with his she must have been about sixteen, I suppose, chatting away. <laughs> and I thought well, that's Lear and Cordelia. Is she, she's just the child that he's always just just talked to. It's, you know, it's been fine, it's always just talking. Whereas, you know, Regan's <laughs> silly. <laughs>
0: The scene, uh, which I believe you call the, the mad scene on the sort of fake cliff of Dover, uh, is really the, the poetic center of, of the play and, uh, and uh, beautiful in this staging scene, as well. It's extraordinary.
1: It? Um, and so, I, I do Chase, hope you. How did Shakespeare dare? Do you think, I mean, can I always imagine going up to the, you know, the king's men and going, i oh, was this marvelous idea of this man who throws himself off a cliff on completely flat ground and thinking, you know. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's a lunatic idea. And it is always, it, it, it is always the, the most precious scene in the play, I think. It's just marvellous. And I played that years ago. Marvellous, marvellous, marvellous scene. Yeah. Anyway,
0: um, and, and Leah's appearance in that, I do hope you'll share with the audience what Nicholas de Jong said about your appearance in that scene. Um, and, uh, and then, Can't remember um, what he said, no. Uh, I, be- I believe Is he it described her as an ageing transvestiteophilia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he meant it complimentarily, I think. He did.
0: He was. <laughs> 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 he did. Um, Actually,
1: he did say rather sweetly. He said uh, about the descent that he hadn't seen such a severe descent, and I I was very pleased with that. You know the. It's all—it's all—it's awful, awful. Awful scene in lots of ways, you know. But I love the hospital gown. I think it just just says what it says, you know. It says he's also did. I don't know whether you noticed. Know, I was wearing the fool's hat, but um, yeah. Was, oh, I'm glad people get. It. <laughs> is
0: is there is there a pressure on that scene? Are you aware of that going into the rehearsal room? Does the circle make that daunting? Does it help? Are there lots of suggestions?
1: Just to Well, actually, oddly enough, that scene has never changed. That was, uh, it was the one I was terrified of, so I learned it quite carefully. And, and, and also, I, when I played Edgar this is about memory I played it for the great Robert Stevens, and it was his last show, and I remembered every single intonation he did, the one because I must have listened to it 80 times playing Edgar, I remember every single thing he did which I don't remember of the other scenes, actually, uh, partly because I wasn't in them. But um, <laughs> that scene, I just, it was absolutely in my head, and still is. In fact, there was one mistake he made that I, I rather prefer to um, regulate. It was a tiny little uh, that rather than a thou. And, um, and I'm always rather tempted to do it like that, because that was the way Robert did it. Um, and uh, So I'd learned it very, very carefully. And I think the members of the cast Okay. might be able to support me on this but I I I think it was basically a sort of just I just ran through it I mean there's not there's not much one could do you know there was you know there's one place to sit and there are two people to talk to and it's not and I think in an odd way that was a scene that oh I I know the big thing about it before I did it I didn't want to mime anything I was very very I, I'm a terrible mimer for a start so I thought <laughs> really inflicting that on an audience of me going, it's a piece of cheese. <laughs> um, wouldn't work. So, and there's also something slightly cute about it. I, I uh, was worried about that. And, they, and it, it, the, the, the scene has a sort of tendency to be cute anyway. Um, anyway, so I didn't want to mind. So what I wanted was for everything to have, except for the mouse, of course, um, everything to have uh, an actual thing. So the cheese and the assistant had happened to have a banana there, so that became the cheese. And and I wanted a paper so I could have um, a proclamation for Gloucester Reed. And then of course I thought page three girl for the um, the you know, the dame, simpering dame. Um, and so everything had and the, you know the press money was flowers which he would got from his hotel bedside. And so that led on to the plastic bag, and I had this, I imagined him you know, sneaking out of the hospital and just piling what he needed into the bag. And it's quite important that there are more things in the bag than he mimes, you know. So it doesn't look like I have a sort of bag of mime, you know, <laughs> things. You know, there's a bottle of water, and there should have been a toothbrush. I don't know where that went, um, but you know, there should be more things in it than than I use. So I, I think that's what I pre-prepared for it. And then we just did it, and I, I'd sort of—it sort of remained fairly steady. I mean, I'm sure Sam, no, Sam gave me notes, but it's—it is a monologue essentially, um, except for Gloucester's rather, and Edgar's rather marvellous interventions.
0: Um, well, we started at the beginning, we end appropriately enough at the end. I'm so sorry. I know there are a lot of questions, but um, Simon's obviously done a matinee. We want you to be able to get home. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking Simon Russell Beer.